Welcome to the next installment of the SUAS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your host, Patrick Egan. In this episode, uh, we put together a super panel of guests talking about CUAS, uh, safety of the NAS, vulnerabilities, role of the UAS OEMs. A couple of them, we're going to talk about some of the technological deficiencies, current trends, and future developments. But before we get into the episode, I'd like to say hello, as we always do, to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Hello, Patrick. And i got to tell you, man, this is going to be quite the lineup. Uh, and, you know, just about everything in that lineup is going to touch first responders and how we do our business. So I am excited about this one. Well, yeah, it's going to be, uh, this one's going to be, should be pretty interesting. Uh, we have a lot of guests. We usually have like one person on, but we have a lot. So uh, I want to kind of dive right in and I'm going to introduce the folks and then let them uh, give a quick explanation or a brief description of who they are and what they do. And let's start with uh, Robbie Sin from Department 13. Sir, could you tell us a little about yourself, what you do? Yeah. Um, my name is Roby Sen. I'm the founder and chief technology officer of Department 13 Incorporated. Um, my company's main focus right now is uh, the development of a counter-autonomous systems platform uh, that uses uh, machine learning to be able to detect, identify, track, and take control of devices such as drones. And my main focus right now is on the research and development of new technologies for our product. Excellent. Um, next, we've got uh, Rob Thompson from the CUAS Coalition. Rob. Hey, how's it going? I'm Rob Thompson, and uh, I formed the CUAS Coalition help industry stakeholders engage government to forward the usage of CUAS technology and policy surrounding counter drones industry. And um, my partner, Jeff Anders, and myself have spent the last six months on Capitol Hill raising awareness, uh, creating language, engaging legislators, and proposing solutions to the federal government on policy issues, such as the many Title 18 laws that we always speak about. Excellent. Michael Blades, Frost and Sullivan. Hey, Patrick. Um, like you said, Mike Blaze, I'm the research director, uh, North American research director uh, for Aerospace Defense and Security Business Unit for uh, Frost & Sullivan. Uh, my main responsibilities are market research and analysis and uh, growth consulting on specific markets. My main markets are anything drone, so unmanned uh, air, unmanned sea, unmanned ground, and also now counter UAS, which has been an offshoot from the uh, UAS, um, well, we, we could say explosion, but we know it's not an explosion. But the, the larger interest and the larger uh, market uh, capabilities for the, the small UAS. Uh, so that's my, uh, that's my role, just tracking that market. And with regard to counter UAS, uh, I'm probably tracking Hello. about 100, 100 companies that make counter UAS. So. Excellent, excellent. Uh, and then lastly, we have David Kovar, Kovar and Associates. Are you there, David? I'm, uh, can you guys hear me at all? Yeah. Good, Go excellent. Ahead. I couldn't 
Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, my name is David Kovar. Um, uh, primarily focused on doing UAS forensic analysis, and so as it ties into counter UAS, we are addressing the you've detected it, you've identified it, you've neutralized it, now what? Um, and so we've been talking with a lot of the TUAS vendors um, and doing research in that space and trying to sort of round out the whole model. Excellent. Well, I don't know, you know, again, if people follow uh, this group of folks on uh, the Twitter, I know a lot of you guys are pretty active. That's where I'm active. Um, and we seem to engage in these conversations and we talk about this. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to preface the whole thing here uh, and, and say, because people go, oh, counter UAS, I thought you were an advocate. Yes, I consider myself a UAS advocate have been for a long time. However, I am also realistic and, and have to admit and be an adult enough to say there are places that unauthorized drones should not be, i.e. prisons, emergency situations like firefighting, um, you know, and other, uh, let's say, natural disasters, whatever, wherever we have U.S. forces or coalition forces in harm's way, et cetera. Um, Everybody agree with that, or do, do, do we have anybody out that are like, oh, no, we can't have anything in that uh, like that? No, I, I absolutely agree, and that's one of the challenges I've always had in that, you know, I speak up on anything about UAS analysis or UAS, counter-UAS, and people say, oh, you're anti-drone, and they forget to look at the people um, such as ourselves who have been involved in this industry for years, who've had 333s and you know, the rest of this, uh, who've been advocates for drones, who are advocates for appropriate regulations, and then all of a sudden, just because we're talking about addressing a very, very, very small part of the population that's using UAS, uh, we become anti-drone. And I think that message is um, very disabling for having an informative and open discussion. Right. Well, you know, I... <laughs> I look at it and I said, okay, you know, uh, let, let's let's talk about uh, geofencing, for example. Um, I, I'm not pro geofencing for a whole bunch of reasons, but we'll get into as the show progresses. But I would rather see, let's say, a facilities manager, um, someone who's in charge of, of, of some sensitive real estate or possibly whatever, an event or whatever, be the one that determines, hey, I want. I can't have unauthorized drones here. Uh, I'm going to make the commitment, buy the equipment, uh, have the countermeasures, whatever I'm going to do. And I think that that makes more sense than, let's say, limiting someone who is playing by the rules, went out there, got their 107, got their TSA background check, got their authorization to fly in that area, et cetera. Anybody want to uh, agree or disagree with that? Okay, this is like the Wallflower Show. Hey, this is Roby. Um, I have a, a, a similar view, but maybe a, a little bit nuanced, is that uh, I, I think we all agree that there needs to be some regulation rules, and you just described, you know, the right process for people to go uh, through. Uh, but I do think some of the, uh, I mean, you guys, you guys know about my company and its background. 
uh, and uh, certain folks are working there uh, and how they have gone after certain companies' approaches to the uh, no-fly rate. And uh, we all know that is not a, uh, a fix for nefarious individuals, but I think in some cases, uh, especially for uh, you know, most people who are having fun with drones, uh, having some things like soft limitations or software-based warnings uh, and uh, these kind of geofencing uh, options, and I prefer that they alert the user that they're in a place they shouldn't fly instead of just say, you can't fly at all. But I think right. there, is a, there is a place for this, uh, but it should be something where it's not so much a government enforcing it or a company enforcing it, but I think it needs to be a collaboration with the consumer. And this is one of my problems with some of the U.S. companies. I mean, excuse me, the, some of the drone companies uh, make these unilateral decisions for their users when the users have invested large amounts of money in their products and one day they wake up and are told they can't buy the product. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I generally agree with what you're saying, but I think there, there really needs to be a better interface between the vendors, uh, government, uh, and regulatory bodies and bring those facts to the users into the discussion. Right, and and I would agree with that. Now I've and I, I again, when I, and I appreciate you being uh, delicate about calling out any one company in particular, and because uh, you know we want to be we we don't want to sound like we're bashing anyone, but I will say that one of the the companies I made that recommendation uh, years ago that they maybe emulate the Tesla model where the screen would go red and you know you know are you authorized to fly here. You know, clicking the button, so forth, blah, blah, blah. However, I've kind of changed my stance a little bit after what I'm calling the uh, the revelations with the ChiCom system. I don't, you know, people are, oh, no, maybe you're making a big deal out of this. Hey, you know, um, I, I do a lot of stuff, and I'm not going to go into to, to great detail with it, but I, I do, let's say, participate in events that are sensitive to national security. And I cannot, in good conscience, come to a, uh, an event and use a company's product that's, let's say, not U.S.-based and is collecting data. I don't know what data they're collecting, but I don't want to be, you know, I have a security clearance. I don't want to be the weak link. I don't want to be the guy giving away the show. Anybody want to comment on that? Well, I think that we're all, this is David, um, I think we're all in agreement. Um, the cybersecurity issues around drones uh, in particular, but that it also extends out to pretty much everything IoT um, and a lot of other issues out there. And the Sonos uh, privacy policy, and they're potentially bricking all of their devices if you don't agree to have your data collected. It's a broad spectrum problem that's not limited to just UAVs. Um, to bring it back to counter UAS, um, and this is something that I think is near and dear to a lot of our hearts, you know, part of the UAS solution is how do you identify a malicious drone versus a non-malicious drone? And this ties to geofencing. Oh. I mean, if you've got a good identification system on the aircraft, then your geofencing system now may become a lot more flexible in that, you know, this class of 
identified drones are allowed into this airspace and it's not managed by the vendor, it's managed by some U.S. agency. Um, and I'll point out that China is implementing a drone ID mechanism through uCloud. They claim it's through their, their aviation authority. Um, it looks like it's a public-private partnership, and I'd be wary of having any U.S. In, any single U.S. firm running either UTM or running a drone ID system um, because we run back into cybersecurity issues. Uh, you know, Google is a U.S. company, and they're collecting an enormous amount of data on us, and we may not be completely comfortable with that either. No, but, you know, I mean, and that, you know, I, we're, we're going to get into a little bit of that. that. It's funny that you mentioned that because I saw that story, and I'm wondering if that was where the idea for the land system came from. Now, before we get too, he too far ahead of ourselves, I, I uh, you know, I, I'm skeptical, and you may, you know, I'm a little bit older than, uh, let's say, most of the readership at SUS News, but I remember the Cold War. You know, and I remember, you know, what was going on then. And, uh, you know, these public-private partnerships, when you say, say public-private partnership, I think uh, we, we really kind of have to throw it out there uh, just as food for thought for, for the listening community that when we're talking public-private partnership in China, we're talking a private-public partnership with the Communist Party of China, you know. I, uh, that, that's a little bit different than, you know, maybe the state of California or, you know, a local municipality or something like that. That's kind of how I see it. I'm like, hmm, that kind of sets off some warning bells. The other thing with the land system is, is you have companies involved that are, you know, uh, Chinese or that have Chinese investors. You know, what, what's the role? And I don't want to sound like I'm wearing the uh, tinfoil sombrero over here, but I, how do we how do we even vet these people that are that are offshore? Who do we subpoena? Figure out what's going on. Does anybody anybody got any ideas on that? Yeah. So I mean, I've done I've I've been part of subpoenaing subpoenaing uh, firms all around the world and work I've done in the past in doing digital forensics and supporting that. And there are a lot of mechanisms for doing so. One is if they have a U.S. based. Uh, part of their organization, it helps enormously. Um, another one is if they have a law enforcement portal for that sort of, okay, we understand that we need to work with you. And the, the firm that you are referring to um, has been encouraged to stand up uh, that sort of portal, and all they have said in the past is, uh, you know, if we get a legal subpoena, we'll cooperate. You know, no one's seen that happen yet. And then there are other countries which are just more friendly to this sort of thing. So. In this particular circumstance where we're dealing with Chinese companies, uh, there are significant uh, cybersecurity concerns in terms of what data they're collecting. And then as we suspect and we're going to prove out in the next year or so, getting data from them under legal authority may prove to be challenging because none of that data resides in this country and the people that are responsible for giving us access to that data are not in this country either. So it's going to, the ability to file uh, subpoenas and other legal devices on DGI uh, and other Chinese firms is going to be interesting. Gene? Mm -hmm. can, can I make a quick point? Sure. So this is Roby again. The, the, uh, uh, having been involved in certain uh, uh, 
let's say, um, law enforcement, federal, state, local uh, actions that involve various products, we found, too, that when we're doing the forensic analysis that uh, certain companies have purposely given us poor or false information. And one of the things that we've learned is that to be able to go after or uh, these organizations, not just post, like, you know, after some event, trying to prove information that's been exchanged or shared or exfilled inappropriately, or just even things like in the pursuit of a, uh, a criminal case, you're trying to extract data and use it in uh, uh, evidentiary way in a, in a case, you want to have uh, support of the vendors. And we found that certain vendors uh, support, certain vendors don't support, and, some, and a certain vendor, uh, which we've been talking about, have a, a, actively tried to make this process harder. Um, and uh, I, I won't comment on on any of the companies involved, but one of the things that I've realized is that uh, we need a much better understanding of these devices, and that requires uh, people to uh, reverse engineer these devices, their applications, um, the software that goes on them, how they're used, because you just cannot rely on these vendors. Right. Well, and... I don't know if you've seen that, Roby, but uh, I've been calling uh, in, in some of what I've been writing and on the uh, Twitter and all the rest of that, that really somebody should be funding this. You know, somebody who will remain nameless, you know, the, uh, the wife goes to the in-laws for a couple of days, he buys a couple of pizzas, he's sitting around the house. And, and, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing what he's doing, but really I think that uh, I think we're being naive. And then that kind of brings it right back to the counter UAS thing. Okay, so let's, we've been talking about some of the security issues. I, I think we're, we're all kind of in agreement that um, we're not really sure on exactly what's going on here. So, you know, when, when people start talking about, and we have the ID and tracking arc going, and I've been harping on this public-private partnership, and we have it's private. It's, it's not open to the public, right? So here's my thing is, so have, how, you know, is, is this, is this even viable, this ID and tracking thing with, with, with the data security issues we have and spoofing and all the rest of that? I mean, and, and let's say nefarious operators. I mean, are we just like throwing marbles at ourselves? Nah, I don't think so. Uh, I've, I'm going to pipe in here on this. As a general aviation pilot and, of course, being in public safety, I really don't have a problem, and I, I sort of advocated for an ID system in the first place. And those ID systems can be made secured, you know, significantly more secured than an open web system like we've got now. But uh, I, I've always felt like that uh, uh, if you're going to be a commercial operator, if you're going to be flying out there, you should have a tail number, whatever. You should have some sort of identifying number. And, you know, regardless of what people want to call it, mark of the beast and everything else, I think it's going to be required on a closed-loop system. We're going to have to get control of this thing, and we're going to have to know who's in the airspace. And it's it's real simple. Uh, you know, it's it, there are ways that, that it can be done now. Uh, you know, I know they've talked about ADSB and all that other good stuff, but uh, we're going to overload that one. And somebody's going to come up with a good way to 
keep up with every single aircraft that's in the air. I have faith in our technology that it will happen. Well, this, this is Mike. I'll, I'll, I'll put some meat on, on that for Gene. Um, I agree because there, there's something already in operation in Dubai. Uh, the Sky Commander is operating now. They've got the, 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 ID, the ID tracking. And uh, not only that, they're, they're going to require point-of-sale registration. You have to go get a registration uh, and permission to fly your drone before you can actually purchase that drone now. So uh, obviously that's a little bit different uh, like a, more of a totalitarian or uh, uh, rule in, in the area, but uh, it, at least there's a benchmark to go off of, and it's, it's it could be you know a sign of the times. Well, and Mike, well, let me let's ask go you. back to what we said before. I mean, this is a disruptive technology, uh, and it is probably one of the most disruptive technologies we've had in well in my lifetime anyway. And I lived through the PC sort of revolution. But this is something that affects, it's, it's three-dimensional, it goes far and wide, and uh, sorry, but it's going to have to be taken in hand and controlled. Yeah, but is that something that, uh, you know, this Michael system you're talking about, you know, I mean, who came up with this? Was this, a, you know, at the toy company level, or is it something that, uh, you know, they called in some other, let's say, a legacy-type vendor to, to develop the system? Yeah, there's not a whole lot of uh, that deep information on it, but I know that they're they're tracking it like they they would a uh, an air aircraft control uh, an air traffic control center. Uh, you, you can you can Google it now and see see the screenshots of what they're looking at. So um, obviously, you, you know, the bad actors are going to get around that, um, and that's 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 the black hat versus white hat that that Roby and his, his companies like his are dealing with that all all the time. Because as soon as they figure out how to uh, identify uh, Detect, uh, track, and identify drones. They're, someone's going to come up with a different way to to subvert that, and they're going to keep having to figure out how to wait. You know, it's going to be back and forth, back and forth, counter drone versus counter. Well, and here's right. this is David again. The other problem with a tracking system, um, it can be spoofed, so you want to avoid that as much as possible. But mm. it's a, there's a privacy issue around it. So if you are sharing all of the information about that drone and where it's going and who's operating it. You know, we're now collecting a wealth of sensitive information again, and this is exactly what we're concerned about with the information going to China. Who has control of that information? Who has access to it? And if a malicious actor gets access to that data, they can use it to do, let's just say, track Amazon delivery packages, or they can use it for figuring out where, when people are flying over sensitive infrastructure, a lot of other things. So building out such a registration and identification system requires a partnership of not just UAV vendors saying, here's how we want to do it. They require cybersecurity people, physical security people, and privacy, as well as some other uh, people. So it's got to be a really good group of people put together that are looking at all the issues involved. This is Rob. I'm going to step in here and say a few things. Now, Now, going off of what David said, and a strong partnership. I mean, if you just do the Google searches on China and espionage, they always come to the top. I mean, the partnership we have going right now that I'm calling for uh, for the FAA to change is the you know dismembering of the DAC because uh, they've lied to us repeatedly over and over again. We have printed articles. Now we know that the code has been manipulated. I think the time to move is now and uh, start some other kind of group. Um, the infiltration of the, the Chinese products is pro- prolific across across the boards, uh, especially with the seats 
when you identify the members that's on the the DAC right now. So um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna announce it publicly that that that's my next mission. Well, and I agree with you. I, you know, I mean, I, I got to tell you, I mean, you know, I've been busy with uh, stuff that I've been putting on hold for years in my own personal life, and I'm trying to get to, through that. But I agree. You know, I mean, the, the the people at the FAA are really supposed to be like kind of the de facto gatekeeper on this deal. And and you know, we've got people on the on these groups which I've been harping about for a while now that are unqualified and. People have poo-pooed it, and, you know, that, that Egan guy's cranky, and he got up on the wrong side of the, you know, web bed and whatever his problem is. But, hey, man, like you said, when this stuff starts coming to light that, you know, people have been a little less than, than let's say, honest, um, I think it really calls into question the vetting process on these advisory committees. And then, you know, I've been harping on this public-private process, too. The FAA lets these people get into these task groups. Oh, go in the task group. And then the members of the public are not invited. Minutes are not kept. So we don't even know what's going on there. And I'm, and I'm not going full conspiracy theory that people are working together to get things done. However, certain, certain companies, certain vendors have a vested interest in, let's say, mandating their products. And I, I don't think it's, it's a good thing. And for some of the reasons that we just discussed here. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of what you're doing. The other thing I want to talk about is somebody was just talking about ADSB spoofing. Um, things can be hacked. Things can be manipulated. I mean, we're seeing this right now with even, you know, if we look at the Navy ships. I mean, we've had two ships hit other ships, you know, and these are some modern, uh, high-tech uh, navigation systems. I mean. I'm not saying that we're, we're, we're going to tie both of them together, but I, I, I just think that uh, there's some vulnerabilities here that may have been missed. And I can see that if we don't plan correctly for this, uh, for this uh, ID and tracking and some of the other things, it's just going to basically uh, come to nothing. And that is, again, back to why I think we need uh, some of this counter UAS technology. Anyone want to take so one it from of the there? Tricks of implementing counter UAS technology safely is addressing exactly one of the things you just alluded to. Um, some of the counter UAS solutions depend on uh, weak crypto on the in the data link, or sorry, the control link. Uh, they depend on other cybersecurity flaws in the systems to be able to access the flight controller or other aspects of the system to take control of it and to bring it down under the control of the counter UAS operator. So there's a problem here. As we require greater cybersecurity, tighter cybersecurity on the aircraft themselves, we actually make it more difficult for some of the counter UAS solutions to operate. If you make a drone more, uh, if you make it so it's less susceptible to GPS jamming, to uh, hacking its control channel and things like that, then how do you actually implement a counter UAS solution that's going to bring it down? Uh, there are other options, obviously, but it does eliminate some of them. Hmm. So uh, this, this is Roby. If I could just comment to that. Um, this is, a, I think, a an argument that's been had many times, and there is a clear, clear answer which is never, ever, ever to uh, make systems easier to exploit. Uh, I, I mean, I'm one of these vendors here who is making a, 
counter U.S. system uh, that in some cases uh, uh, can use a drone insecurities, uh, cyber insecurities, or uh, I would just say security issues against it. Um, but I uh, personally believe that that is really not an issue for uh uh, that, that needs to be concerned about. You can harden a drone as much as you want, and there's always going to be certain fundamental flaws you can't solve. Uh, and those fundamental flaws exist in uh, military systems, commercial systems, etc. cetera. Uh, and we don't have to get into that. What happens when you start thinking of making systems inherently insecure for some reason is you create vulnerabilities that will be exploited by nefarious actors, malicious actors, uh, just people who are doing things for fun, and, and of course, uh, uh, you know, state organizations. So I'm all for get strong crypto on there. Go ahead and try to make these things as secure as possible. Um, you know, that's a problem for us vendors to, to deal with. I am fundamentally in agreement with you, and I think that one of the challenges we face in the UAV cybersecurity realm is that people are rushing product to market and building security. Having a secure product means that you build security in to your logistical supply chain and your software development lifecycle, and both of those cost money and slow down your release cycle. And so... That's a whole nother problem that is probably a subject for another show. But I absolutely agree with you that we should not create compromises in our UAVs or in our real ID system or whatever else we're using simply to support counter UAS. I think what we need to ask of our counter UAS vendors is that they are able to handle any likely configuration of a CUAS, sorry, of a UAS in the hands of a malicious operator. Right. Well, so, and, and uh, uh, if, if this is, this is Roby. Let me respond really quick. I, uh, there's two things that I was trying to get to. Um, the first is, uh, and it touches on the last thing, uh, that I think it was just Mike just said. Um, and the first of these is there is no quote unquote answer solution to all our problems. Uh, I think we all understand that we uh, various layered systems and different approaches, depending on the scenarios and situations, certain things are going to be better. Uh, and uh, this is going to feed into counter UAS too. There is no silver bullet counter UAS. There is no system that is going to defeat, uh, manage, control everything. Uh, the best you can do is a bunch of uh, detectors and effectors or sensors that will get uh, to deal with both scenarios and you have to do a uh, some kind of risk reward modeling and I think this comes this is really important and it comes to a word that we're using secure and it's being used incorrectly there is no such thing as secure in the, the area we're talking about it is an active process. And security, which, uh, you know, I, I think uh, was Mike brought up, not just the supply chain, but the whole security we're talking about, the life cycle of 
threat, not just from buying the drone and uh, all the way through forensics, but even things like training responders, training the public, uh, getting people to manage expectations for these new threats is just like anything else. Uh, there's going to be a certain level of risk that we have to accept as uh, part of bringing these new technologies into our life. I think it's very important to bring this up because the idea, the fallacy that we're going to have, quote, unquote, secure systems anywhere for a perfect defense is exactly that. It's a fallacy. So this is David, and it wasn't Mike, and just to keep Mike from getting in trouble for what I say, uh, let me own that. I apologize. I'm very sorry. Um, And the second thing is, there is no perfect security, and no, I don't think anybody can realistically expect that there's perfect security in the physical world, in the cyber world, anywhere else. Um, It's just like, Um, you know, as long as only one person has a secret, it's safe, and as soon as you've got two people, it's not a secret anymore. Um, Right. that, That said... We must, we must expect that people will strive for very good security and to minimize the risk of data leakage or privacy information leakage or anything like that. We must ask that of the vendors in the drone space, in the counter UAS space, in the ID space, in all those spaces. And like the DAC committee having discussions without including people with cybersecurity backgrounds and privacy backgrounds it's just a it's a it's a failure in in setting up that uh, the roster of people involved. Yeah, you know what? This is totally why I don't great. like don't like having experts on my podcast because you guys are always stealing my thunder. This guy over here with his <laughs> no silver bullets, and this guy over here with we don't have experts on the deck. <sighs> now, those are exactly points I was going to make, and that is actually why I like having experts on the show. There, I, I do believe that there are, let's say, the uninitiated and laypersons out there, again, who, who are not experts, who do think that there are these silver bullets out there that as soon as we you know, figure out what we need, we just tell somebody, hey, Johnny, get in here and make us a silver bullet, and they're going to do that. That's just, And that's totally ludicrous. So hold on just a second. We do have a caller. I'm going to put the caller on and uh, have them ask a question. So hold on. Let's do that. All right, caller, are you there? Yes, this is uh, Dr. Ryan Wallace, Polk State College. All right. Did you have a question for the panel? Uh, no, I, I first want to compliment the panel on addressing this issue. Uh, this issue this is actually a, a focus area of mine. In fact, uh, I want to shout out to Rob. Uh, Rob and I have been working together on, on this project for at least a couple of weeks now, and obviously uh, it's starting to gain a lot of traction out there right now. Right. So, uh, you know, you, but, what do you think of the conversation so far? We're, we're on target. You're, you see any holes in this? Do you have any comments? Well, I mean, I, I think in general, counter UAS as a whole, um, there, there's enough holes in just the concept to drive a truck through it. Because no one really has the right answer. I think you uh, you said it perfectly by saying there is no silver bullet, and a layered defense mechanism is absolutely what's necessary. And that's actually uh, exactly what I had recommended in a paper that I wrote about this topic about two years ago. Um, but suffice to say, we're, we're seeing now the vulnerabilities, particularly the exploitation of UAS by um, by people that have intent to do harm, whether that's a, a smuggler trying to smuggle drugs across the border or drop uh, contraband into a prison. Um, 
and we need to find a way to deal with it. And uh, I think we have to look at all elements to, to see what technologies uh, will bring themselves and what active responses will bring themselves to solving this problem. Right. And uh, go ahead. Somebody was going to jump in here. Uh, no, this is Mike. <clears throat> I'm, I, I like this guy. He, uh, <clears throat> Rob, he, he, I put a, a, a report out two, about two years ago as well, saying the same thing about layered defense. So um, I, it sounds like most of the people here are thinking, thinking the same. But um, the other thing I want to say, though, is there's a lot of companies out there, and, and Roby can probably back me up on this, that still don't they're, – they're saying that they have a solution, and, and they, they don't even understand the rules for what they can do with regards to uh, – uh, whether it's something that they're doing is wiretapping, whether it's against FCC regulations with regard to uh, b- blocking or uh, jamming signals that are um, public spectrum use. So uh, there's a lot of people trying to jump on the bandwagon that want to, to develop a solution but don't even have uh, understand how they're going to develop that solution yet. So it, it's an interesting sort of nascent market. Well, it's a, and, and you know right. again these these experts. Uh, it's hard to work with you guys, but uh, you're you're hitting um, another point that I wanted to make here. There there are people are starting to say, oh, this is an emerging problem. Oh, and we have some emerging solutions for this. But uh, Mike, you're you're hitting on that. You know you you can't go to a you know an airport and start jamming comms. That's just not going to work. But we're seeing more and more people are like, oh, look, you know, hey, wow, people are using drones to smuggle contraband into prisons, and people make excuses for it, whatever else. And I always say, well, you know, I don't represent the prison guard union, okay? I'm in the drone business, so I got to focus on what the drones are doing. Same down at the border. Now, this has been going on for a long time. Same deal with the counter system. Now, there was a tweet a while ago, this is probably a uh, several months ago now where Raytheon was like, oh, we're going to do tests with the phalanx system, counter drone. And I suggested that they go back into their history and look, because back in the 90s, they tried it. And uh, if anyone uh, wants to spend the time researching the uh, the exercises, let's just say uh, – Accidents. Yes, the USS Iwo Jima, uh, the bridge was peppered with the phalanx system. And all I got to say about that is no bueno. Um, so I think they went back and looked at it too and, uh, said, well, you know, this isn't going to work. Plus you can't use the phalanx system in downtown Sacramento. You know, it was a 4,500 rounds a minute or something. And I mean, where's all that lead coming down? So it's just not really viable. Um, well, anybody, well, okay, I was going to say there's kind of a kind of a two pronged approach. This is Mike again. There's kind of a two pronged approach. There's there's a lot of there's companies that are really focusing on the defense aspect, and there's fun- companies that are really focused on the commercial aspect. And obviously, the defense companies are, are relying heavily on radar because they for detection because they want to look really far out and see larger things. The commercial side is you know focusing on the smaller uh, RCS type of systems because that's where the real you know asymmetric threats going to come from. Um, now, obviously, there are systems that that are going to you know cross over to both, but there there are certain focuses that. Uh, w- like defense companies are looking at different things than really these these startups are, and um, but you're right, uh, a phalanx is 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 not the answer for downtown anywhere. But they are talking about sticking lasers on that thing because what they're doing is they're repurposing all the the sensors. So that's kind of a trend. SRC's taking their counter IED stuff and and um, you know re reformat and you know Roby knows more than this. I'm not I'm not an engineer. 
well, I am an engineer. I just don't use it. But uh, they're re, they're reformatting or re, making different algorithms in the software for their counter IED radars to detect drones. So they're kind of repurposing some of the uh, technologies that are out there. Whereas a lot of the commercial companies are sort of building things from the ground up. So it's a it, it's sort of a two prong approach. Some crossover, but it, like I said, there's there's probably I think over over 100 companies that I'm tracking, and they're all it's just going to be like drone OEMs. They're just all not going to make it. Right, right. Well, well you the know, the fidelity of such systems are poor, in in many cases, to be able to counter a drone. Right. Well, there's that, and well, then you know, even I mean, the, the the eagles and the hawks and you know the birds of prey coming in, and I mean, I, some of it is uh, it's absurd. But are, are we seeing? You know, is there like with this panel? Okay, and, and you guys are all kind of on the cutting edge. You know, are we seeing something that's promising, uh, you know, that's not ridiculous, like net guns and, you know, capture net drones and, and uh, Wi-Fi rifles and stuff like that? Or are we seeing something that's looking viable out there? Anybody? So, so this is, this is Roby. Um, if, if I can jump in here, um, the, the first point I, I think uh, to make is, I think almost every technology has some niche, and this is a this is a big uh, uh, domain, uh, even bigger than counter IED. Um, this is a there, there's places for the net guns, and and I, I'll be the first to say they don't have much efficacy outside certain um, scenarios, but you know they're they're a real solution. Same with jammers, all those things. And you guys are bringing up holes, which is, you know, we've addressed as why we need to have these multi-layered systems. Um, uh, and one of the things that I think we brought up is people are saying, well, systems don't work, et cetera. What I think we're seeing right now, uh, which uh, in, in 20, 2012, when I started uh, really focusing on this, this is kind of the pattern I predicted, is that everybody would first recycle and reuse what they had. Uh, the second would be that they would deploy them. They would find the gaps in those, those technologies and then start to try to respond to their gaps. And what we're seeing right now with the U.S. government with tests like, you know, Black Dart, uh, Desert Sand, uh, MITRE, um, you know, all these other tests, is they're starting to explore the limits and spaces for each class of technology. And I, I recently saw uh, a report of 196 uh, CUAS technologies that had been tested by government bodies. And um, there was about 10 of them that were uh, doing very well. And the, the government is starting to realize that certain technologies are appropriate in certain places, like, you know, let's say, uh, you know, you do have your stingers or your patriots or your uh, kinetic weapons as a, a uh, hard kill backup uh, or a jammer or a herb, all these other kind of things, but that your primary response to be needs to be something that has a low impact on kinetics. They're just figuring this out, right? Um, mm. And the commercial industry is also just figuring this out, too. Uh, that there are those commercial entities out there that we've been talking to and working with, and some of them are actually comfortable and willing to take the risk of deploying a system that is not 
uh, legal um, because they're they're basically their idea is they'll take the fine or they'll make their case in court that they were uh, life safety was worth the risk of deploying uh, let's say a kinetic solution. Mm. Um, so that's that's an that's an interesting very interesting trend we're seeing that more and more commercial companies are just saying, well, the government's not going to provide us legal protection to protect, let's say, folks in a stadium. So we're going to respond in certain scenarios extra legally and go ahead and take the hit. So Uh, so stadiums are an interesting interesting example. Go ahead. So this is David. the, The fact that commercial entities are deciding to take the risk of violating federal law in a variety of different areas is a very interesting one. I don't think stadiums are a really good example because there are several government agencies who have lead roles in securing public safety at those facilities, and they are not commercial. They are actually federal agencies that do have the ability to get waivers or exemptions from some of those. And I know... Well, I've worked with a couple of those agencies, and I suspect that you have as well. So that's a whole different example, I think. Well, well let me chime in. Yeah, micro- I, okay. So just just for the just for the also listeners, I think most people don't realize, for example, that there's only two bodies that can uh, say if someone can use a jammer in the United States with them, and those bodies don't hand out waivers. It's very very rare. And when they do hand out waivers, like, say, for something like the Super Bowl, it's a pre-planned event. It's not an organic event. It's not a, uh, uh, like, somebody decides to have a show, uh, and they decide that there's enough risk, so they're going to bring a, a countermeasure. No, you have to do this many, 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 many months ahead and work with the FBI or the FCC. Uh, and, and for people who want to have a sense of how difficult it is, there is SWAT and EOD teams all around the United States that cannot deploy a jammer and don't have access to jammers because the FBI has not granted them that privilege and that right. So I think, so I think there's, there's the fundamental challenge that we as a country are facing. It's not a technical problem. It's a legal problem. Um, mm. Who should have oh. the ability to bring down a UAV and under what rules of engagement should they be able to do so? Um, And this goes back to how do you determine that it's malicious? And once you determine that it's malicious, what gives you the authority to do something about it? And then there's the liability if you crash it. First of all, you're taking somebody else's property without their permission. You're potentially jamming, which is FCC violation. You're potentially hacking into a computer that belongs to somebody else, which is another violation. But so those are all just you know legal challenges, and you need waivers or whatever. But then there's exactly what you just said about the liability. Well, let's say you jam it and you take control over it and you fail to give it the right commands to land it safely, and it falls on somebody. Who's liable? It, and that's good, that you, somebody should sort that out before commercial entities are saying, we're just going to deploy these things in violation of federal law, and when it becomes a problem, then we'll take the hit. 
that in terms of risk management, that seems like a very poor decision. Well, that's a great segue into uh, you know the coalition that I've started. I've spent the last six months on Capitol Hill uh, going over with legislators exactly those things that uh, you've spoken about. Um, let me give the the listeners a little bit of background that the uh, NBAA that comes out uh, basically had uh, already granted permission for military bases to shoot these uh, wayward drones down. Um, and they've just put out press uh, release about doing it, and I think that's to uh, further install that, um, you know, counter systems are going to be coming, and there's going to be a select few that could use them first. Um, some of the legislative stuff that we've asked to be included in bills is a pilot program ran through an agency. I'm not going to say which one. Um, but in, in, in that they test everything in a civil manner uh, for defense so that everyone has a, a fair trial and that these tests aren't set up just erroneously and that we're actually, you know, um, setting up for the, the special reasons we will need these at prisons, um, stadiums, and large crowd gatherings, um, and then critical infrastructure. And that last piece of critical infrastructure uh, needs to be refined yet. Um, there's all kinds of thousands of miles of transmission lines that critical infrastructure uses. Um, you know, all that's going to have to be mapped out and figured out, you know, at what areas can we use counter-turns and where will they actually be effective at. Um, yeah. Some of the other things that we've heard is there could be uh, an exemption process from all the Title 18 rules if you qualify. Um, and what that qualification process looks like, um, it's, it's tough to say right now. Um, that's still all being argued. But I, I would think that in this uh, next reauthorization that's coming out, and I'm saying it now, it's, it's going to be an extension if you think of all the turmoil that's going on in Washington, D.C. right now, um, there's absolutely no talk about any of this FAA stuff. Um, so in fact, it's the case, they would already have set all the meetings up, and there's there's no meetings set up, folks. So uh, that's a low priority right now, and we'll probably see a short time today. Well, the other thing – hold on a second. It's my show. Yep. <laughs> the, um, the other thing with that is I think uh, you're making a point here, Rob. Uh, hopefully – they they come together and they they set up some sort of uh, arc or or advisory committee or something and have the right people on them. These, we've talked about some of the large issues with with making the uh, counter UAS thing viable, and there are a lot of issues. And I think there's a lot of issues that you know we, we we're seeing in the mainstream, let's say media about it or or talking or in the uh, in those circles. I think we're seeing the tip of the iceberg, and there's so much more below that. That, that needs to be thought about and really hashed out before we get there. And I think this is an issue that our government has with technology across the board. People, the experience that I have uh, working with the government is most people in the government do not understand, uh, let's say, some of these newer technologies and some of the newer vulnerabilities. With that, we're, we're going to be, I know we're going to go over an hour, which usually we only do a half an hour. So what I'm going to do, is I'm going to go through the way that I introduced everyone, and uh, they can make some closing statements um, and, and, let's say, put a bow on what we've talked about here today. And I'm going to start with uh, Gene Robinson. Gene? I'll tell you, there, there has been so much ground covered here, and uh, there is so much more ground to cover. And I think it's uh, exciting that we have people like uh, our esteemed panel out here thinking about this stuff because uh, it's coming and it's going to have to be addressed. 
and it's going to have to be addressed very soon. I'd agree with that. We'll have to have another follow-up podcast and maybe in the next quarter after the reauthorization and and have maybe a rubber where the rubber meets the road uh, podcast, but uh, good insights. Uh, Roby. Hey, uh, so uh, yeah, great conversation. I think there's a a lot of agreement. Uh, One thing I I would say as a, a vendor and a technology company um, I think more time needs to spend be spent on solutions that are not technology focused. So you know everybody's talking about technologies for counter UF. Um, in reality, uh, there's still a huge amount that is human driven, not only detection identification and then uh, uh, intent uh, tracking and even mitigation. Um, and this is a subject that we talk with government and commercial. Uh, they don't think through how they're going to train their team, how they're going to respond to events, uh, as well as you know these things like tactics, procedures, and policies. And I really think, you know, as we've talked about today, that is the biggest area that's the biggest problem. As a technology vendor, we have a solution that's not jamming. It's surgical. Uh, it doesn't interfere. It's been used in the United States. It's been used abroad. It's been used defense commercial. We're very confident we can meet the needs, and there's other vendors doing really cool stuff. But the big problem is not technological. It is the process, procedures, rules, regulations. So that's that's my speech. Okay. That's fair, fair enough. Uh, Rob Thompson. Yes, uh, this is Rob Thompson. Um, I'd like everyone to uh, consider joining the CUAS coalition, especially if you're a manufacturer or an asset owner. Um, we need your voice on Capitol Hill. Uh, there's been a lot of suggestions that agencies uh, would like some things done. I don't speak for the voice of the agency, although I take their suggestions. Um, it's the manufacturers and the people whose livelihood and industry is going to be impacted by these rules and regulations that need to come to us and join, and then we can unify our message on the Capitol Hill. Because the fight's not over by any means, but uh, we've made great progress. Thank you very much. And, uh, what, what's the website address of the coalition? Uh, the website address is www.cuascoalition.org. That's hard to remember. <laughs> Just kidding. Mr. Blades. Okay, I'm supposed to turn off a mute when I talk. Okay, um, yeah, I I, I kind of wanted to sort of hit on what Roby's been saying and you know talking about companies uh, coming at this CUAS problem with uh, from a from an angle of maybe doing things that are not not according to the law right now. Well, you talked about reauthorization, and reauthorization actually has language in it uh, that says that there'll there'll be a, a, a a plan developed for certification, permitting, authorizing, and allowing deployment of technology or systems for the detection of and mitigation of unmanned aircraft systems. So at least the FAA understands that there's going to be something uh, done about this. Now, the trick, like you say, is getting people on whatever committee decides whatever those uh, certifications and authorizations are going to be that know what the hell they're talking about, and hopefully it's people like uh, work with Roby and his company and that are developing things that can that work without – you know, impending on the communications and what's going on, uh, say, around airports or whatever that may be. So, But that's the reason why pe- those companies are out there trying to develop things that aren't totally uh, within the rules right now because they're hoping that the rules 
that they can develop things. You know, the 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 process for making regula- regulations right now is slow, just like it was in a drone. It's going to be slow for CUAS. The companies are going to have to come to the to FAA with with the solutions rather than the FAA mandating what solutions will be used. So uh, that's the right. last thing I got to say. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna doom cloud all over you. Because, you know, I've been, uh, Gene and myself have been doing this, what, for the first uh, ASTM meeting was, what, 2005, right, Gene? Reno? That's that was about 2005, so 12 years from there, and we were... Slow. Well, and not only is it slow, but, you know, some of the other problems that we talked about here are, are an issue. So here's the other deal with, with uh, I think, when these the FACA rules were made and, and some of the ARC rules were made. I, I, I can't speak for Roby and I can't speak for his funding, but I, I don't think he can afford to leave someone on a committee for a decade to come up with nothing. I, I mean, is that, a, is that a fair statement, Roby, or are you guys, you know – can you afford to, to leave somebody on something like that for a decade? Uh, absolutely not, which is why we've been uh, uh, probably the most forward-leaning in actually getting language and specific uh, documents changed. Uh, and also why we designed our system to work with inside U.S. law. Uh, but you're exactly right. There's just there's no way, you know, we're not one of these huge vendors who can spend tens of millions of dollars lobbying and wait for years and years and years for regulations to pass for us to sell into the market. Anyway, well, exactly. And, you know, I'm a veteran of these, you know, these committees. I, I've done them. You know, I did the RTCA. I, I've, I've done the ASTM. I've, I've done other various committees globally. And, um, you know, the the model is one uh, where technology flows very slowly. So it's not something where uh, this is why we're seeing the, I would say, the hodgepodge of, of uh, disenfranchisement with the drone rules. It's just it takes forever. The only people that can get in there are people that are, um, you know, their companies have enough money for some guy to come up to speed. And after two years or three years, then, you know, he's feeling, oh, okay, well, maybe I could participate in this conversation, but I still don't know what I'm talking about. And, it, and it's repeated again and again and again and again. Uh, even now, I don't feel like we have qualified representation in the uh, NASA integration stuff. So to, to get people that are experts on this, here's, here's the thing I'm going to tell the government right now for any government people listening and all of these hard issues, you're going to have to spend some money. I think you're going to, even the guys like uh, Roby, like your company, the government is going to have to say, Hey, you know what? We're going to have to set aside some money. We're going to have to get away from the FBO process, which is by for all intents and purposes rigged for people that have advocates on the inside. And I'm making friends. There's more people falling off the Christmas card list right now, but that's kind of how it works. So if you're not a big vendor, you can't even get into the running. So that kind of ties back to what Rob's doing. I think uh, that's a good idea, Rob. You're, you're getting out there. You're going to talk to Congress first. Hey, this is what's going on. This is kind of what we need. And you need the input from the companies. And it's really up to the companies to change the dynamic. And yeah, I'm if I jump can just off. say something right now, is that, uh, you know, 
if the if the company has got in there and supported their products, um, we, you know, I'm crawling through the woods. You know, for all the military folks out there, I'm in an old low crawl. Uh, when we're on Capitol Hill, they're like, "You're the only person that's up here seeing us," and uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna see this go down the same path that I saw Jarens go down. I thought, well, people know better, and they're gonna take it. And uh, no, I mean, I my family legacy of 80 years with the FA. I'm telling you now, I'm taking counterterrorists out of the FA. They don't even want them, folks. They just want good technology to keep uh, the wayward drone operators away from the airports, and that's it. We're not running any programs through the FA anymore. Uh, well, it's a good opportunity for for people to, you know, let's say, um, cut through a lot of the uh, the noise. So, lastly, I want to I want to give David uh, a chance to to uh, put his closing thoughts in here, David. Uh, very briefly, and this is something we learned from doing cybersecurity and incident response over many years in developing programs in the space. Um, the priority order for resources is people, process, and technology. Um, if you acquire technology without people and process, it ends up being shelfware. Um, if you have processes without the right people to implement it, then people ignore processes. So whatever you're doing out there, whether you're built with the FAA and trying to build consensus about how to do an ID, if you are a private corporation trying to figure out what counter UAS solution to use, if you're a UAS vendor trying to figure out how to go about cooperating with the government and keeping your clients happy, keep in mind, focus on getting really good people involved in the processes, and then go figure out what technologies you want to apply to the problem. I think that's good advice. So I'm going to encourage everyone listening. I mean, thanks to the panel. I, this, again, uh, you know, one of the, the benefits, as far as I'm concerned, of doing this podcast is uh, I get to talk with some uh, people that really know what's going on, and I, I appreciate you sharing, uh, let's say, your empirical knowledge here. But I'm going to also encourage you guys to spread this episode around for the betterment of the community, and also people that listen, share this uh, with people you know in this industry, because I think that this, as the, we go forward, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to have to pull the long pants on and get real and it's up to us how this deal goes down so with that thanks everyone for being on and uh we look forward to our listing for our providing more content to our listing uh, audience later on and i do think i will have another podcast uh after we get the extension or the reauth or whatever we get with the funding and we'll talk from there so with that thank you everyone and uh thank you, everybody have a good week thanks patrick thanks